0: Keith is the Director of Sales and Marketing for Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp. He is also the co-author of the forthcoming autobiography of 1980's New Wave singer Dale Bozio titled, Life is So Strange, Missing Persons, Frank Zappa, Prince, and More. Previously Keith worked as global project manager for GeneSimmonsVault.com, an artist development rep at Capital EMI Records, and as an actor in several TV shows and films including The X's Retired at 35, General Hospital, and his best known role as Ted on an episode of The Office. You can find everything that Keith is up to online over at www.keithvalcourt. Com. For our conversation today, we are going to be discussing Prince and the Revolution's monumental record known as Purple Rain. This is Prince Rogers Nelson's sixth studio album, which was released back on June 25th of 1984 by Warner Brothers Records. The album also serves as a soundtrack to the 1984 film of the same name. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest to the program.
1: Keith Valcourt. It is. Such a pleasure to have you on the program today. Thank you so much for being on Cover to Cover.
2: Absolutely, thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah. So for our conversation today, we're going to be talking about Prince and the Revolution's "Purple Rain," a really important record in his catalog. Where did this all begin for you? What made you choose
2: this record from Prince? This record for me was probably the fourth Prince record I owned. I, I, I had previously discovered "Dirty Mind" and "Controversy." And 1999, obviously, with everyone knew about that record. But this record for me was was kind of an aha moment that suddenly there was a validation to the fact that uh, as a music geek, I knew what I was talking about. And it was one of those records that it couldn't be more perfect. There's not a single moment on the record where, back in the day when we first got it, of course, was cassettes, where you fast forward through a song. There's not one song. There's not a bad song at all. It's the perfect... It's the perfect lineup, it's the perfect amount of songs, it's the perfect order of songs. And the fact that it had a visual component to it uh, was was just above and beyond anything that had happened. Obviously, we had music videos in the 80s, but this took it to a whole other level.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to think of another artist prior to Prince's arrival in, you know, in the public consciousness. If there was any other artist that basically wrote a record for an entire movie and had a storyline, you know, that closely mirrored, uh, you know, what the record
2: is all about.
1: I think yeah, you, Prince is a revolutionary pun intended in this case.
2: Yeah. 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 I mean, you had, pl- you had plenty of music, music movies before, you know, there was, there were plenty of those. There was a, uh, the band and different, different groups had their music movies, but that mm-hmm. was usually the music that came was the soundtrack to the movie. This, Everything was, as you said, it was built around the songs. The songs were intertwined. And it's not a, actually, it's not even a fair soundtrack to the movie because the reality is, you know, when this came out, the movie had not only Prince and the Revolution in it, but Des Dickerson is in it, Morris Day and the Time are in it, Apollonia 6 are in it. So actually, when this record came out, it's not a pure soundtrack because, you had those other artists, and it, what was what was crazy at the time was they all put out records as well. The Time put out Ice Cream Castles, Apollonia Six put out their debut record. Dez is the one guy who who didn't get a record, but um, it, it, you know, so you basically had three different albums that were the soundtrack to the movie. And this basically took and boiled down, you know, most of the print stuff that appeared in the movie. And and yeah, and, and it's a it it really when you when you listen to the record, much like when you watch the movie you're taken on this journey. It has a very clear beginning and a very clear ending. And even if you didn't have the the movie, this music takes you on that journey without the visuals. And the fact, again, the fact you had the visuals was just mind blowing.
1: No question. We are talking with Keith Balcourt here on cover to cover with Matt Tarka about Prince and the revolution's purple rain. Uh, Keith, you started to allude to a couple of, a uh, couple of the players on this record. Can, uh, can we expand, you know, a little bit? Tell our listeners, just in case they're unfamiliar with the Revolution, um, who's backing up Prince?
2: So the the Revolution, in my mind, stands as Prince's best band. Now, best being a label that you can take any way you want. Were they the most talented? Were they the best players? That's 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 basically up for debate. But they were his. Seemed like his most cohesive unit, and the fact that. They were not just backup musicians. They were collaborators and they evolved. So you have, you have Bobby Z on drums. Bobby Z, whose last name is Rifkin, was the drummer. He, he had been with Prince for a long time. You go back to the early records, you go back to Dirty Mind, you go back to Contra. Bobby Z is there. You have Matt Fink on keyboards. Matt, also known as Dr. Mark, Dr. Matt, rather, has been, again, was with Prince for several albums leading up to this. Lisa Coleman, also on keyboards and piano, Lisa was with Prince going back to the Dirty Mind record, so you have that going on. And then on bass is Brown Mark. Brown Mark was kind of new in this time period. He, he had come about uh, at the end of the 1999 period, but he got involved. And then the biggest change is, of course, the besides Prince on lead guitar, Wendy, Wendy Melvoin, who plays a, a bunch of the lead guitar, was knew when it came to Purple Rain. She had replaced Des Dickerson. Des had gone on to have a solo to, to plan a solo career. I don't know what ever happened. They had a band called The Modern Airs and they never released a record. But Wendy came into the fold and that's that's when you basically had the perfect mixing of all the elements. Because you not only had multi ethnic, you had men, you had women. It was it was it was like it was like Prince looked back at the old Sly and the Family Stone blueprint, mm-hmm. what Sly did, and and created a band that had a feel for what the world looked like. You know, it wasn't just a bunch of dudes playing. It wasn't just a bunch of uh, it was it, it was a mix of men and women, and white and black, and all ethnicity. Everyone was welcome, and I think that added to it. And and again, they're just. They complimented him so well. Not, And I, I've been very lucky over the years. I've met Wendy and Lisa, I've, I, and I've gotten in-depth conversations with them. They were true collaborators. Prince's early records for you and Prince, the first two, those, those were Prince doing his own thing. They, this was a situation where he actually trusted Wendy and Lisa enough to say, hey, I've got this bit of a song. What do you think? And they would add to it, and they would actually create Together, which was new for Prince, it was definitely it was new territory for him to actually get to take that control which he had relished so much in the early recordings, and let other people be part of the creative process and let other people tell him what was good, bad, or indifferent, and and continue from there.
1: Talking with Keith Valcourt here on Cover to Cover with Matt Tarka about all things Prince and all things uh, Purple Rain. Um, can you describe for our listeners exactly you know? How you were introduced to Prince? I, I know that so, you're a longtime fan. Was there is there a, like, yeah. a little anecdote you can share? Yeah,
2: yeah, and it's and it's and it's not good because it's illegal. Um, when <laughs> when we were, I grew up in a very small town in Rhode Island, and, and I and I grew up middle class. You know, we ha- we had what we needed. We never we never wanted for anything, but we were bored. As teenagers, we were bored. So at some point in my teens, a couple of friends and I decided that, hey, let's find some cars that are unlocked and let's steal the cassettes out of the cars. And we did. And, and you know, and there were some Tom Waits, some Roxy music. So there was a whole world of music that, at, you know, 14, 15 years old, you don't know about because it's not your world. And in one of those nights where we were stealing cassettes out of somebody's car, the Dirty Mind cassette was there. And it... Grabbed me, and the cover of when you go back and look at that record, he's shirtless, he's wearing a jacket, he's wearing a bandana. It's he's staring, he's boring holes into your soul with his eyes. There's something about that record that you know, you just uh, immediately upon looking at it, I was like, I have to have this, I don't know what it is. I've kind of heard about this guy, but I gotta have this. And of course, I took it home and played it, and, and it was so groundbreaking at the time because it was so edgy. It was so challenging. He, he was not afraid. He was doing things that no one else would do. And I know by today's standards, where you have all this rap, that basically, you know, look, that that WAP song came, and you know, with uh, Megan the Stallion, great. I, I it's it's graphic as hell. But back then, to a fourteen-year-old in the in the early 1980s. This was this was not this was this was unheard of. It was crazy. Um and so that that's how it began. It be, began with that and then I got the controversy cassette from somebody and then MTV started playing all the stuff from 1999 so that obviously became a big big deal. This record I discovered um I discovered the film first because I was such a big fan and I told everybody about it. You know, and every people were like, they, it's not he's not rock and roll or or he's too he's too weird looking or he's too, you know, he's like, he's a sissy because he, all, the, all, the, all these people who, who like thought they knew rock and roll were very negative. Then, the, then I heard the movie was coming out and I went to see it the first weekend it opened at a, a movie theater in Newport, Rhode Island. And I was probably one, very, very, very white part of the world, Newport, Rhode Island. And I was probably one of 20 people in the audience. On, on opening weekend, and, and I went with my, fr- my friend Wendy at the time, and um, and just was blown away. So the, the next day, rushed out, bought the cassette, bought the vinyl, and emerged myself in it. And then over the process of the next six months, anyone and everyone I could, I dragged to see Purple Rain at the movie theater in Newport, Rhode Island. I saw Purple Rain in the movie theater 17 times in the first four months of its release, and when not watching it, it obsessively listening to the soundtrack in the car, obsessively playing the record when I was in my room on headphones and so forth. And uh, so, yeah, so that's that's how it gets like, like that's the whole journey of Prince. I'm not proud of the fact that it started with a, a is it burglary or robbery. I'm not sure what, what they would. It was not a larceny, but that's how it started. It was, you know, a, a random act of uh, of violence and a random act of discovery led me to his music and then. The, the soundtrack, just seeing the movie for the first time and seeing the power of cinema combined with the power of music. And again, not just background music, not just music jammed in the places where there's no conversation. A perfect blend of music and cinema. It, it, it was impossible not to become infatuated with the record after that.
1: You know, this is just a little bit of an aside here. I'm thinking about the fact that you went to see Purple Rain 17 times. Now, how how much times have changed where there's so much immediacy after a movie right. is released you can stream it these days or you can buy it on DVD or something like that right. back back in the 80s you would have to wait you know if there was a video store in your hometown maybe there might be two or three copies that would be exactly on, on that it, shelf
2: uh-huh exactly and, and 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 as a kid so you know flash and it also took a year so it's not like today like a movie would appear in the movies or streaming and it's instantaneous and then you can buy it on DVD two months later it would take a year and I remember Purple Rain did come out on VHS a year later and you got to remember something too Blu-rays nowadays cost what 25 bucks I like that, bought yeah. that I bought that VHS tape and now VHS tapes at the height of the 80s eventually you could buy them for cheap They were 20 bucks or whatever I paid a hundred dollars For that VHS tape, because at the beginning of video rental stores, they weren't selling. They didn't want to sell VHS tapes to anybody because they they thought that was going to cut into their business. They wanted that rental. They wanted you to come in and rent it. And so they were only selling VHS tapes to these people who were running video stores. So I had to order it through a video store, through the film distributor to get it on VHS. Um, and play it again and again and again. Yeah, it's, it's hard to explain to today's generation. We didn't have the instant gratification. We, there was none of that. You wanted concert tickets. You didn't go on the computer. You sat in the snow outside of a shopping mall and waited overnight until they opened the doors at 9 a.m. and you were in a line and you hoped that you got to the, the ticketmaster machine fast enough and the guy pulled your ticket so you could go see. I remember doing that to see Prince on the Purple Rain tour. And you know, it, 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 but nowadays, yeah, there's there's not the immediacy and I think that's part of a that's part of the fact that also. Things aren't as beloved these days, and they're not as important because things are so easily accessed that people move on to the next thing very quickly. And though there were a lot of releases, albums, and cassettes back in the day, it was not the same. You would live with a record for months on end. You would, you know, even if you bought two, three, four of the records. The next month, you'd still live with them for a long time. It was not like it was not a, it's a quick burn these days that didn't exist back then.
1: And people were much more uh, attuned to the, the mystery and intrigue of an artist. They were OK with that. By today's standards, you want to know everything
2: about everybody. Right and prince was the king i mean prince was pardon the pun but prince was the king of that he didn't do interviews he didn't he was he was shrouded in mystery and that that intrigue made him even more interesting and it took years and years till years later when he finally started doing interviews and we didn't have we didn't have the internet we had typewriters. It's crazy. We didn't have, you know, Twitter and Instagram and, and Facebook. We we literally, you know, you didn't you didn't have any of that. Your social your social group was people that you hung out with. You know, it, MySpace was was literally the space around you, and Facebook was something that happens if someone hits you in the face with a book. You didn't have you didn't dad jokes. You didn't have um, any of that. You know, you had you had it was word of mouth, and that was why this record became so important to me. Is because my word of mouth about about this artist spread through my entire school and through not just my immediate fan, uh, immediate group, but through the entire school, where they were like, "Hey, you're the dude who knows about music. You, you you're the guy who listened to Prince first. And it was it was, a, it, was a, it was a weird thing, but it became it became almost a, a bragging right to have known about him years before anybody else even though the reality is the music was out there you could have discovered it but people weren't discovering it they were too busy listening to whatever was the whatever was hot at that time
1: our show is called cover to cover and today we are going coast to coast here with keith falcourt here talking about prince and the revolution 1984's purple rain uh keith is this record a drastic departure from his previous efforts Or do you think that this was kind of a thing that he was continuing to sort of build upon?
2: I look at this record, honestly, I look at this record as almost a Whitman sampler, if you will, of all of his abilities and all of his styles. It was Prince saying, hey, I can do this but I can also do this. And guess what? I can also do that. I can do the funk. I can do the rock. I can break your heart with this ballad. I can come up with something that sounds experimental and, 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 and and has a craft work kind of, you know, influence to it. Um, He, I think it was just a matter of him. Literally, he was stretching out and he was showing off in a way. It was, it was the first record I think where he literally said, look at everything I can do. And, and people people bought into it immediately. When Doves Cry is a perfect example of a pop song. It almost feels a little calculated in the fact that it's a perfect pop song. But it was the song that everyone got excited about. You know, we're, Let's Go Crazy, again, it's a call to action. That's a, That's a giant rock song. If you listen to... The solo at the end of it—you can put that solo up against anything that was being done by Led Zeppelin or at the time or ACD. It's just—it's just so powerful. It's rock and roll. It starts off in church. You've got that organ. It's—it's—it's it's, it's literally a gospel tune, and then it turns into this funk rock mix, and then it ends literally rocking and blowing through your speakers. And it's just one of those things where he. I wouldn't call it a departure. I would call it an evolution, or I would call it a, a a chance for him to show off all the different talents and all the different styles he could play and wanted to play.
1: This, this feels like a great time to talk about your favorite tracks on this record. Let's start with Let's Go Crazy.
2: So so as I just mentioned a few minutes ago, Let's Go Crazy is the ultimate song because it's all of these styles in one. It's It's a gospel song. It's a rock song. It's a funk song. And it ends with a monster guitar solo, so it's 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 a hard rock song at the end. That song, is, you know, is everything that Prince could do thrown into one song, uh, and I think that's why it it opened the picture, it opened the movie. Obviously, it just presented itself in such a way. That you literally were drawn in immediately, and it didn't matter. Oh, oh I don't like gospel music. Well, that's okay because the keyboard stuff will go away in a minute. Oh, oh, this funky stuff I don't like. So it was it was the perfect way to start the movie. It was the perfect way to start the album. It was the perfect way to draw you in. Then take me with you, which is a lighter song. You know, it's it's very much a pop song, and it features Apollonia singing. They're singing a duet on it. It's it's a beautiful song. It's catchy as all out and then the the my favorite part of that is of course the the drum breakdown where you you know do 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 do, do 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 which you know at in the 80s there was a lot of that you have that part in that Phil Collins song where you have that doom doom that those those were very yeah. very big in 80s songs and that so that song I, I I I love that drum breakdown I love Apollonia singing she had she tried I know she put out a record after this and and did a bunch of acting but unfortunately she didn't continue on which I think is a shame because she had a pretty Solid voice, and she. I think she could have had a career. But that song, if that's the only thing she ever did, then she scored because it's such a it's such a beautiful duet. The blending of the voices is perfect. The, then you go into the beautiful ones, which is a straight up sexy ass ballad. It. I mean, it really. It's just. I'm, I'm not going to talk out of school, but let's just say that this is, that, that this is a romantic soundtrack. You can take that song when we made mixtapes and you wanted to impress a girl that song dropped on the mixtape at some point they you know it it's just beau it's just so sexy so seductive and it ends in with that crying out at the end where he's screaming do you want me or do you want him cuz i want you and in it and it's just it's just so passionate it's such a passionate song yep so then and then computer blue computer blue is is the weird song it's definitely the song that you just kind of go huh it's funky, but it's also, it's got, it's got early craft work kind of feel to it. It's a, it's a really strange song. And when they did this, they did it, uh, an updated version of the soundtrack a few years ago for one of the anniversaries, they did a four disc version and there's a different version of computer blue on it that has more lyric, more lyrical content. And, and the, the that song makes more sense when you hear that version than when you hear the original version, cause you're just like, what, what does he mean? Computer blue? What does that mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, the end of side one, Darling Nikki, the thing that made Tipper Gore and yeah. all of the PMRC lose their crap on a daily basis. Exactly. I I yeah. saw her in a hotel lobby masturbating with a magazine. Again, tame by today's standards when you can go on the Internet and put the word porn in and see whatever. But back then, those words were Unbelievably titillating and unbelievably exciting and unbelievably controversial. You just, you know, you just sitting there going, "Wait, wait, what did he just say?" And it's a song about sex. It's a song about meeting a woman who you don't even know and signing a release, signing a consent form, and then having mind blowing sex. And you literally wake up the next morning, you're not really sure what happened, and she's gone. And to put that on a song and to put that in a major motion picture that was for the mainstream was incredibly daring for the time. And that was the one song that literally anytime I played this as a kid, my parents lost their shit over the fact that this song, that, that was playing. They, they were so offended by it. They couldn't, they couldn't believe that, that, that such a song existed.
1: When I revisited the dynamics of Darling Mickey, for some reason I felt like this song may have heavily influenced the White Stripes. I don't know why. Oh, I
2: can No, I can yeah. I can hear that. I I can Here, definitely yeah. hear that. Yeah. Uh-huh. It it, it, it de- I mean it it, it definitely has a, it has a a purity to it that I can see them picking up on. I don't know if if that's a, for a fact if Jack White was ever influenced by that, but yeah, it, it's but it's one it, it and it's one of those songs that everybody remembers from the time period because again, it was so controversially. It was, such, it was so different from everything out in the rest of the world. Everybody at the time was talking about that. So Everyone, once they got the record, everyone's like, oh my gosh, great record. Did you hear that song? Did you yeah. hear Darling Nikki? You know, yeah. And then and then any poor girl in our high school who was named Nikki or Nicole <laughs> were harassed on a daily basis because they were like, hey Nikki, you like magazines? So I, I, you know, I felt bad for them, obviously. I, I, yeah. But You know, yeah, it's just, it's just, I mean, it's a, and it's also, it's the perfect way to end an album side. You you know, you, you are, you're blown away, but you're also wondering what's next.
1: Talking with Keith Valcourt here on Cover to Cover with Mad Tarka about Prince's Purple Rain. Let's flip over to side B and we have When Doves Cry.
2: When Doves Cry, arguably.
1: Amazing music video.
2: Yeah, amazing music video. It's crawling out of the tub They've, they're, they're in a, they're, yeah, there's, it's just one of those, it's, and again, arguably the song that probably most people first discovered or, or the mainstream first discovered a Prince on. It was a song where most people got on the bo- uh, got on board and said, I like this guy. Um, it just, just perfect. You know, the, the way the Lindrum is in there. It's just, it's just an amazing song. It's super catchy and it's so simplistic when you when you listen to it it's not there's not a co- lot of complexities in it uh, other than the keyboard flourishes it's you know it's basically almost a straight line um, yeah. with with a with a beat and it, but it's just yeah so so just mesmerizing and 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 again a song that most people even if they didn't like prince they love that song they, there's, no they, they,
1: there's no
2: bass. there's no bass track. there's yeah. no bass
1: yeah. He, had, yeah he
2: there's a version there's a version that exists on bootlegs with a bass and he dropped. He did it. Said, "Nah, that's not working." He dropped the bass out, and and you, you've got you've got a track without a bass, which is again revolutionary. All puns intended to to, to do that, and for that to be the the hit single from the record. You know, it, it's crazy. I mean, it's just great. Poor Bar- 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 Brown Mark is sitting over on the side, like having a sandwich or something when they're, you know, when the record comes out. And he's like, uh, I don't get to play bass on this one. OK. Um, but yeah, it's awesome. It's a, it's just a great song. And then you go into I Would Die For You slash Baby I'm a Star, which I know they're two separate titles, but I always consider them one song because they run together. They're they're the BPMs are almost exact. They're, you know, they're basically one piece that's, that's stitched together. He did that a lot in later in, in some of the songs. He would take pieces from stuff that had been in the vault and turn it into songs. And the beginning would be from one song, and the end would be from something else. And I, those two songs, uh, you know, I, again as I call them, as one, super catchy. You know, I would die for you. You, you know, you couldn't help but sing along. I remember seeing that when I saw the Purple Rain tour the first time. I saw it at the Worcester Centrum in Massachusetts, and everyone, you. I would die for you. I mean, you the hand motions, everyone in the entire place was going nuts. It, exa- it syncopated rhythm together. The entire crowd was into it. And then, of course, you end the album with arguably the most beautiful piece of music the Prince ever wrote. You know, the the ultimate wedding theme, the ultimate prom theme, the ultimate love song, Purple Rain, the title track of the album Soaring vocals, soaring guitars, beautiful keyboards, just absolutely heart-wrenching lyrics that draw you in. I only wanted to be some kind of friend. I mean, how many times when you're, when you're young and you're in love with somebody, you really, really want them to love you back, but they don't. So you go, I only want to be some kind of friend. So you're, like, you're protecting yourself. Because you listen to the song, he is Deeply in love with someone, there's somebody in there that he wanted to share his life with. It, of course, this is my translation, if you will. But and it didn't work out, so he's like, "I only want to be some kind of friend. I, I, I could never steal you from another. It's such a shame our friendship had to end. Friendship had to end because he, in my opinion, he wanted more, and it was never going to be that. So that was the end of everything. No, and that and that and that ends the record. In the most, you know, the singing and, the, and just the most perfect way to end it. It fades out. It's just, you know, you just, it's, it's just a beautiful thing. The cigarette, the, the lighters are all being held in the air. Everyone is communal and happy, and boom, and that's the end of the record. And you just, you know, you just feel like you've taken this journey, you've taken this ride, and you're spent at the end of it. But luckily, because it's music or a film. You can start at the very beginning again.
1: You know, I I had read somewhere before, uh, you know, we figured out a time to talk that uh, this song was almost recorded as Stevie Nicks and was uh, designed to be a little bit more of a country tinge tune. I'm glad that the actual, you know, guts of the song and the way it turned out um, stayed as is. Just, yeah, I do it it's, would have
2: it's, been the same. Yeah. It's, it, it's interesting when you listen to a lot of the bootlegs, you you hear this evolution. You hear what songs were going to be and what they what they turned out to be, especially in a lot of the songs that he gave to other people. Um, the, the, There was a band he called The Family. The band The Family was made up of St. Paul Peterson, uh, Susanna Melvoin, who's Wendy's twin sister, who was engaged to Prince at the time. Jelly Bean Johnson from the time, Jerome, uh, Jerome Benton from the time, and Eric Leeds on saxophone. That band, Prince wrote and produced the entire record for them, the family record. And Nothing Compares to You, which later Sinead O'Connor made a massive hit, is on the family record. When you go back and you listen to the original version that Prince recorded as a demo to give to St. Paul, it is so, so much slower and so much more heartbreaking than the version that Sinead O'Connor did that anybody did. But it's just, it drags a little. So when you listen, it's, it's interesting to go back and listen to these these nuggets or these seeds of what grows. And in most cases, what you end up with is ten times better than what you had. There's very few cases where you listen to the old bootlegs and you hear a version of the song and you go, oh, we should have done it like that. No, he knew what he was doing. He knew how to evolve a song. He knew how to make it move into a place where it belonged, he, you know, and, he, and from the very beginning to the very end, even the, the last couple of records he did with, with third eye, the "When he did with third eye girl was just phenomenal. And, and yeah, the greatest, the greatest tragedy in all of this is that, you know, he, he, he should still be here. Uh, he, you know, the anniversary of his death was in April. He should still be with us. And it's just sad. We're very lucky. We have this amazing, body of music to go back and listen to, but it's, it's just tragic that he, 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 there was so much more to be done. You know, it's just a shame that we can't hear what he was going to do next.
1: Without a doubt. We are talking with Keith Valcourt here on cover to cover with Matt Tarka about Prince and the revolution and the 1984 offering purple rain, which also was a major motion picture. Uh, Keith, I think I want to close our conversation by just having a conversation about cover art. And, uh, You know, we live in you know kind of this wild 21st century where things are always moving at such a rapid pace. But one thing that is pervasive still is some form of cover art. When you look at this album cover, what kinds of images are conjured up in your mind? Do you think that it's an accurate representation of uh, what you experienced, you know, many years ago? Now, Um, do you find different you know sort sort of sources of imagery from this as you? Look back on Purple Rain.
2: When I, when I look back on it, it's it's very representative of the film, and it's very representative of the confidence that Prince obviously had coming into this time period. When you look at the look on his face, he's sitting on the motorcycle. He's dressed in purple. It's the it, the this, this, this smoke, the rock and roll smoke, is blowing everywhere in the background. And you just go, like, like, that's a cool dude, and he's about to do something cool. Don't know what it is. If you were a stranger looking at you might not know, but it's something cool is about to go down. And then you look in the background, and you see at the top of the stairs through the open doorway a beautiful woman. And it's Apollonia, which I, obviously I know that, but someone may not. But you look, and you're like what's going on? Like, why isn't he looking at the woman? We're, we're, like, she, is she waiting for him? Is he waiting? You, 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 all these things come to mind. And then you look at the outer rim, which has all these flowers, which, again, is so important when you, when you think back to the imagery of the, of the video for When Doves Cry. It, it, it's just, it, it is one of the things that, uh, cover art is a, lost, is a lost art, literally. Because when when I was coming up, I would go into a record store Again, back in Newport, Rhode Island, next to the movie theater, there's a place called the Music Box. I would look at the records. Now, you would know what was you were going to buy based on what you heard on the radio. Okay, so you might buy you might buy what you're in there saying I'm going to buy this new the new Police album's out. I, I heard the song. I'm going to buy it. But then you would look at the cover art, and there is many a time where you would buy a record just based on the cover art, not knowing anything about it. I remember the band Talk Talk seeing seeing their second album and the 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 song had not been played yet on the radio buying it just because the cover art was compelling you know it was one of the things where you would buy stuff literally just based on the cover art you there was there was something about it that if the cover art was good you trusted that the music inside must be good if the cover art was garbage chances are it was you know going to be a terrible record it was going to be something that you didn't want to own in your collection And you almost, the way we used to keep our albums, you would keep them so people could flip through them so that the cover art was telling a story before you even took the record out of the sleeve. And with Purple Rain, the cover art tells the absolute story before you even know, you know, if if you don't know the music, which I can't imagine anyone doesn't. But you look at that cover art and you're like, something's about to go down. This guy's cool. And whatever it's going to go down, it's going to be cool.
1: Keith Valcourt, it has been such a pleasure talking with you about Prince and the Revolution and all things Purple Rain. Thank you so much for being on the program today. I really appreciate
2: you coming on. Excellent, Matt. Thank you for having me. I really, it was a, it was a pleasure for sure.
0: All right. Thanks so much to all of you for taking some time to stop by the program today. For all of you listeners out there. Thank you very much, and please remember to hit that subscribe button on that device in which you listen to your favorite podcasts, whether that's on Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, or maybe even Amazon. Take a moment to tell a friend or tell some of your family members about our show. Let us know how much you like the show by giving us a good rating. That will certainly help us appear higher in search results. And feel free to drop us a line at hello at cover to cover conversations.com. Intro and outro music of our podcast is produced by Jarrett Nicolay at Mixtape Studios in Northern Virginia. We hope you discovered some new music, perhaps rekindled your love for an old forgotten song, and shared a good moment with us as we continue to sonically explore a world from cover to cover.